Welcome to Winning Uglier with Brad Gilbert. What up, Buck? You know what? I still woke up this morning at like 2.30 in the morning thinking, tennis is still on from Roland Garros. No, it's over. But there was tennis from St. Petersburg. So I have to get back into my groove of trying to sleep in a little later because I get up antsy thinking about the fall clay court season. Uh, yeah, no, French Open is is finished. I, you were really getting into that 2.30 a.m. rhythm. I, I <laughs> but uh, yeah, so um, Rafa wins his 20th overall slam title, tying Fed, 13th French Open. It's it's crazy. It, it it just gets crazier and crazier every year to me that one guy can just dominate so thoroughly at, at, at a given major, even though it's like we've kind of come to expect it at this point. About two weeks ago, when we spoke before the start of the tournament, there was a great quote from Rafa that he was done complaining, basically. Yeah, the last line was, accept the challenge. That's exactly what he did. He didn't come in for him with a lot of, you know, normal wins. He'd only played one tournament, lost early to Schwartzman. But the great adjustment from Rafa came late in the tournament. And it came when it probably needed most. Sometimes it's a little subtle change, but the change came in the quarterfinals against Sinner. I like to call him Sin City. He rips the ball, stands on the baseline, which then three consecutive opponents that Rafa played like to hug the baseline. Schwartzman in the semi, and then the big one was Joker in the final. But the big adjustment that Rafa was able to make was instead of trying to go through these players, which he does a lot with his backhand cross, he moved up his court position a little bit, but he added a little bit of a looping ball to his backhand, which was a brilliant shot, put a little air on it, and then that kind of got the ball up on the last three opponents. Yeah, and we're going to get a lot more into that, you know, sort of tactically, what what he did, you know, to, to roll Djokovic so effectively. Going to also talk a little bit about uh, Swiatek uh, winning her first major title at only 19 years old. Um, you know, and her and Kennan having pretty big turnarounds from what their form was like going into the event. And then going to switch gears and talk about a specific shot that, that you've been noticing players of really a whole wide range of skill levels have trouble with, which is the forehand down the middle of the court, something that you might take for granted and think would be a little bit of a, a more straightforward shot, but it's one I'm that a lot a of people have slump on that shot. Trouble with. I've had six or seven different people I've worked with in the last few months. All different levels, all in a struggle with that shot. And then lastly, going to get to a couple more questions. We got um, one in relation to uh, your Pepperdine coach, uh, Alan Fox, about uh, psychology in tennis. And then one... Uh, about a sort of a day in the life for a college player and a pro player and, and what those uh, schedules look like. Uh, but first, yeah, we're going to flip it back to sort of digesting the French Open and the brilliance that is Rafa. Absolutely phenomenal. The, the last nine sets 
when he needed to elevate and make adjustments in his game, it was almost like he was saving it. Um, and I was fascinated, which started in that match against Sinner. No, Rafa, uh, for a two-hander, a lot of times, he likes to go hard and fast cross-court. He doesn't go as much down the line. You know, a lot of two-handers like to take that ball on and try to go down the line. But the big adjustment that he was able to make in each one of those matches to opponents that like to stand on the baseline was put a lot of air on his backhand and hit it actually more towards the middle and line and wanted to get it up on these guys' backhands. So then when he could get something a little more attractive on the next ball, then he would put a little charge into it. And I noticed that his court position especially against um, Joker in the final, was a lot more like he does on grass. When, when he got a chance to take a little bit of court and flatten his ball out, he did. But I think all three opponents did not make the adjustment that Rafa made to them by putting a little air on their shots. None of them backed up. And that shot became a little more difficult, especially in cold, you know, tough conditions. Yeah, I think it's something that Rafa probably doesn't get quite enough credit for is just how good of a chess player he is out there and considering, you know, his his problem solving skills uh, on clay in addition to, you know, all his weapons out there and his speed and his strength is also probably probably just unmatched because I mean, he's making adjustments and his opponents aren't that his opponents weren't properly countering. You, you know, it's pretty phenomenal is is that he saved this play. He didn't start with it during the tournament, but when he really needed it, and I'm sure there's something that they learned also from playing against Schwartzman, where he got really rolled in Rome against him, trying to go through him, and Schwartzman, who stands so close, beat him for time and robbed him for time. And I think a little bit like sometimes in chess, what is that little move when you you, you castle? Yeah that's, yeah, that's a move there when you protect the king. Yep. That's exactly what Rafa did. He understood that maybe later in the tournament, there was some things that I needed to do and waited for the right moment to do it. And uh, it was beautiful to watch. Um, he doesn't take anything for granted. And the, the, the thing that fascinates me with him more than anything is the simplicity about need to compete. Don't need to take anything for granted. Think about any round further than it is. And then when the match is, let's say it was Djokovic in that final, then then all of a sudden you think about the tactical situation just of that match. Yeah, totally. I, I think even uh, Rafa said um, at some point, uh, I think it was post, post the win over Djokovic, that he doesn't think about revenge ever going into a match because he has had so many tough losses to, to Joker uh, in majors. I mean, including just that Aussie Open final in 2019 where it was a complete, you know, flip and, you know, Joker was the one that gave him a beatdown. But I think by not thinking about revenge, you know, just thinking about, you know, what he needs to do in that given, you know, on that given day. And, and, and he accepts, I think also, you know, when his opponent, his opponent plays a great match and just says, you know, that was too good. But uh, he just then he just looks forward. You know, it may be something to learn from the match that Rafa played yesterday. By the way, that was Buck 
the best I've seen Rafa play live hundreds of times. I mean, yeah, Owen oh, two the first two sets against Novak is just absurd. Seen him courtside so many times. I've never seen him play better tactically and be as sharp from the first ball to the last ball ever. And I think there was something for him maybe now the next time that he plays Djokovic outside of the clay, because he hasn't beaten him outside of the clay in a long time. I think there were some things to be learned from what he did in this match to when he plays him next time, you know, on a different surface, using a little more on air on the backhand, using a little more middle of the court. So I, I do think that even at this level, when you've played somebody umpteen times, I remember when I was coaching Andre, he, you know, if he, even if he played somebody umpteen times, it was always, what is that player doing right at this moment? Is there something that you kind of see? And I do think for Rafa, maybe potentially the next time that he plays him on a faster court, maybe there were some things that worked in this one will work on a different surface. Yeah, that's a great takeaway for people at home too, because I think well, so many people, we have the same regular partners that we play with all the time. And actually, Rafa and Joker have played each other head to head, I think, more than, than anyone else in the history of men's tennis. Um, and so, you you know, when you have a person that you that you play a lot against all the time, especially if it's someone that's, you know, generally getting the better of you, I think people take too much thought and too much heat into those all the previous times you've played and let that sort of cloud your decision making for uh, playing them in the future. It's funny, it's like, they've played 56 times, and there'll be people at home saying, I've played Frankie 687 (laughs) times over the last six years. And if you play somebody once or twice, it is really key in competitive situations to make some changes and or just to kind of do something different to see what, you know, I say sometimes when you push something out there, you got to see how it works. Yeah, you got to experiment a little bit. Absolutely. Uh, one other Djokovic thing I wanted to ask you about. Really, this whole time since we've come back uh, from the layoff, he's been very, very committed to the drop shot, and using it just a ton in a lot of his matches, pretty much all of his matches. And against Rafa, I looked at the numbers. He hit... 28 drop shots for the match. Four in the first game. Four, Okay, four in the first game. Won 13 of the points, so less than half. And it got especially bad for him. Even as the match got closer in the third set, Novak only won two of 10 drop shot points in the third set, I think, as Rafa started to catch on to it even more. So I'm just wondering if you thought, you know, something that Djokovic was overplaying and... You know, should he have made that adjustment to go go away from it a little bit less as the match went on and Rafa started handling it better and better? Uh, I mean, it's a really interesting question. It started at the Western and Southern in New York when Joker played his first round match against Varankas. He was struggling with his neck. And I was thinking to myself, is this Andy Murray of 2006? He was playing at least one drop shot every game and opening game, same thing, like three or four drop shots. And I think he was doing it a lot in New York, um, even in that 11 games when he was playing PCB in the open in that match, he had hit a bunch of drop shots. So I do think that for some reason, sometimes you, you know, when you're playing somebody, sometimes you don't realize whether or not you're a club player or a pro, 
God, the guy's serving wide every single time. Guy's serving middle every single time. I'm drop shotting a lot. So that's something maybe that his team or they're going to look at and video and say, Novak, it's okay to play the drop shot, you know, a little now and then, but not to where you're, you're starting to be predictable with it. And I think in that match against Rafa, he started getting way too predictable and sometimes on some break points down and never in my mind, when you're a little bit on defense, is drop shot a good play? That's kind of like the bailout. The best time to play the drop shot is when you're well inside the court and the player thinks that you're going to thump the shot and then you kind of, you know, hit the little underspin shot. Um, It could be effective at the club level, but overuse, especially of that shot or any shot, can really like spiral. And it, it definitely didn't help him whatsoever in this match. And moving on from the men's event to the women's event, I mean, another fresh face winning a a women's major title, another pretty almost impossible to predict champion going into the tournament in Iga Swiatek, uh, who beat, you know, maybe equally surprising in some ways, Sophia Kennan, who got back to her second final of the year after losing her last match prior 0-0 to Azarenka in Rome. So... And Swiatek, I checked, I mean, her record was just two and three since coming back from the break, coming into the French Open. So she had been struggling and lost first round in Rome as well. So how did they both, you know, Swiatek and Kennan have this poor form coming in and then turn it around and, and really have great tournaments? And Swiatek didn't even lose more than four games in any set all event, which was crazy. Well, let's take Swiatek. I call her Igapop. Um... <laughs> It's a place that she's played well from a young age in the juniors, played well there last year. And sometimes when you come into a place where you've had success, all of a sudden, the two and three, a couple of the first round losses don't matter. But I do think the heavy conditions, cool conditions, really helps Sviatek that she served really smart, used her kick serve effectively. And I think that she has one of the, the, the heavier and more spin forehands. And she was able to get a lot of confidence in that first week, blowing out three opponents. Sometimes, you know, winning a close match gives you confidence. Sometimes rolling three I mean, opponents. She was just rolling the whole way through. And I think that, the match that changed everything for her was one match that she got routed the year before against Halep. Sure. And Halep, you know, just didn't, you know, that day, the slower conditions. And that was one of those matches that, that Sviatek played exactly the same as she played in the first three matches. And she was just using the forehand. The forehand was the biggest shot on the court. And it reminded me a little bit of Bibi Andrescu when she had her run at the 219 Open. She got hot. She used the forehand. She used her guile. That's exactly what we saw. I said before the start of the tournament, my dark horse, somebody outside the top 100 would make the quarterfinals. Somebody unseated would make the semis. I should have just said somebody unseated would win it. Yeah, right. You may as well have should have just gone all the way with that, that you know, wild out there rankings wise prediction um and i was yeah i i think 
personally, it's just, it is in the women's game, a huge advantage for the players that are able to generate a good amount of heavy topspin on the forehand. Like, like you said, with Andrescu and now Sviatek doing it, um, you know, I, even, uh, Jen Brady, I thought was doing a really good job of it at the open because I will say, I do think that there's been a little bit of a lag in the women's game in terms of players still playing flatter and they don't get quite the benefit of the strings and the racket technology playing flatter as you do playing with a little bit more heavy spin on the forehand. And I just think it gives you so much more safety in addition to still not losing power, you know, especially when conditions aren't ideal. Well, I think, you know, BB was, is a big Rafa fan. Sviatek yeah, right? is a huge Rafa yeah, she fan. She goes, goes with the buggy, buggy whip pretty often on the and forehand. she had a great tweet. You know, after Rafa won, is it okay that that I, I tweet you and I share this moment with you? And obviously, growing up being a Rafa fan, she has heavy spin on the forehand. And I do think that, you're right, a lot more women play flatter, but I think that the heavy spin is more effective, and especially on this court. Um, I'm excited to see where she's going to go the next 12, 18 months, because we've had about nine or 10 first-time slam winners in the last 14, 15. So it'll be interesting to see how she processes this and moves forward. And the losing finalist, maybe the the most crazy way of coming into the tournament I've seen for somebody in the top five in the world. Kennen, I call her the Kennen ball run. Came in losing six love. I don't the cannonball run. What Can- is that? Cannonball run was okay. a move. The <laughs> cannonball run. You, some of these references are like a little dated. I swear, man. That's even like before my time. That's a, that's an old movie. Yeah, it's an old yeah, movie I, from I, the seventies. Don't know it. Um, <laughs> absolutely, with no confidence, losing love and love to Azarenka at Rome, who's not exactly you know clay is her best surface. But I thought she made a fascinating adjustment. The way she plays is she always tries to go through everybody. And she plays angry, spikes the ball on everything, and is always trying to take on the ball early. I thought we went back to the 80s. She used a lot of moon balls, which was quite... Every time she was in trouble, she was using the moon ball mixed in with her, like, then all of a sudden maybe getting her opponent to, like, back up or give her something attractive, but she used it very effectively. She also used the drop shot, the short chip. She played with a lot of guile, considering that's not her game style, but to be able to turn around losing love and love and then get to the final. And then actually I felt like, you know, you know, she was in with a chance to, to win. And that's something where club players, you know, and juniors, when you get routed like that, you got to be willing that, okay, what am I going to do here to turn things around? You know, and sometimes it can take drastic measures. Sometimes little, you know, measures can do it. But in her case, like I was really, really surprised by the moon balls, by like her guile, because I hadn't seen that in her game. And next thing you know, she's in the finals. So full credit to her to putting herself in position for making these little adjustments. And you can always make these adjustments. I think for sure one thing we've learned about Kennan this year is that she's a, a great competitor and that she is going to 
find different ways to win. And she does play with a lot of guile, like you said. And I think just the fact that she was able to, you know, when it really looked like she had no form at all, losing a love and love, then, you know, experiment with her game and find a way to make it work in those French Open conditions. You know, I just, I, yeah, very impressed by her her ability as a competitor out there. I promise you, whether or not you're a 4-0, whether or not you're a good junior, college player, pro, you lose love and love. Uh-oh. Like, doubt creeps in and, you, you know, can be a little bit of a struggle for, you know, a few weeks, few months even for players. But for yeah, usually at that point, you're starting to second guess everything that you do out there. Yeah, because you she lose was love and love. I put the word disheveled. That's usually you, you're disheveled. But for her to be able to turn that around that quickly and almost win the French Open, full credit to her. And now moving away from the pro tennis talk, there is a you, you it kind of grinds your gears, I would say. It's something that, that comes up pretty often. And a lot of the players you work with from pro level all the way down to um, club level is the the forehand down the middle of the court. And a lot of players struggling with a shot that really should be, you know, a, a great opportunity for them to to take control of the point. And yet it's it's one that a lot of people mess up for, uh, I'd say, a variety of different ways. So take it away on the forehand down the middle of the court. Oh, well, first of all, I love to call that the opportunity shot. But for some reason, BG, me, is in a slump. About six or seven players that I've worked with uh, in 2020, all different levels, for all different reasons, struggle with this down-the-middle forehand mightily. To quote Mark Grabo, he says, space equals time. So often on this shot, you have time, but yet when you don't move your feet, get proactive with it, you get robbed for time. Yeah, and I just want to, just to paint a picture a little bit clearly, I mean, this is a ball we're talking about that lands, you know, with not a lot of pace, sitting kind of right in the strike zone, bounces on the service line or just inside, where you really have time to step inside the court and attack with the forehand. Let's take myself on this shot when I was younger and a pro. I, I didn't thump the shot. You know, a lot of times I was safe and didn't miss it. Um, occasionally I would approach on it inside out. But I'm seeing a lot of players indecision what they're going to do. They're waiting, waiting, waiting. Next thing you know, they get cramped. They got to take a step back. You overplay it. You underplay it. There's just a lot of things. And a great one to watch, Rafa Fed. Both are so proactive with their footwork that they get side on, they get space, and they just pick a shot. I always say, you know, better to make a bad decision than no decision. So instantly, I t like now the way I play, I get a forehand down the middle. I call, it's almost like a meatball. It's on the service line. I just tell myself inside out, inside in. But I'm going to go for it a lot more now because of I don't move as well on the court. And I'm not going to get a better opportunity. So I say, when you have a ball that's attackable, give yourself a five by five target, you know, big box. And if you struggle with this shot, get a ball machine, get somebody to feed you, you know, where you do sets of 15 and 20 
to where you can start to get confidence and your entire goal on this shot is take the lead. You know, it's great if you can just win the point outright. Obviously, we don't want to give it away like on the unforced air, but a great goal, whether or not you're a junior, a 4-0, a college player, pro, take the lead. Make sure that, you know, and some people like when they get the shot, Buck, like, uh-oh, I better just pass it back to you. You know, because it's like, you know, a lot of times you get that, I call that opportunity ball on the very first point. I mean, a very first shot of the point. And if you're not mentally prepared to take advantage of it. Yeah, it can happen probably the most often after you hit, like the next ball after you hit a good serve. You know, or uh, the person hits a serve and then they hit back a defensive shot. So I feel like this is the one shot. If you're going to practice every single day, I say create space. You can do it three ways. You can hit it closed stance. That's like if you're right-handed getting on your left foot. I like to hit a little bit open stance. Then even the modern is open stance and then getting on your right leg where you're almost like moving through it, you know, open stance going on your right leg if you're right-handed. So it would be your left leg if you're left-handed. Rafa does that a bit. And then you can move through it. But what you want to be able to do more than anything is commit to it and get space. One interesting thing I think you brought up is that, and what I think might cause a lot of people to struggle with the shot, is because you do have more time and and you do have almost sometimes feel like you have too many choices with what to do with the shot. Like, do you play ultra aggressive with it? Do you kind of, you know, play it a little bit safer? Do you play it inside out, cross court? Whereas, you know... on a more reactionary ball, let's say you're on the run where a lot of people like playing those more, it's because it's more instinctual and you don't have to think as much about the shot. So I'm just, I'm just wondering, you know, what can players do to simplify that, that, that process when they have time there? Last week, working with a guy, he's telling me on the down the middle shot, you know, first of all, he's thinking for a long time and then he's just not sure what he's going to do. And then he ends up totally being robbed. But if I, he's so comfortable if he goes two paces away from the center, he goes, that's where I love to hit it. But unfortunately, you can't tell your opponent in a match, can you just feed me there? And because it's two fo- paces away from you, a lot of players react to like, okay, because that forces you to initiate your feet and, yeah, get your, it, and generate your racket head speed and everything So much like of it. it does start with the feet there. So... A great little drill to do is that practice the two steps is practice that same energy and then your brain to going to get the ball to going to get the ball in front of you. Doing those little pitter-patter steps and creating the space. Because most players think that because the ball's coming down the middle, I don't have to create the space. I don't have to do those little proactive steps. But you actually have to do it more because if you don't, so many players struggle I call getting trapped when the ball gets too close to you and then you end up having to take a step back or you end up having to do a, f- a little, f- uh, you know, funny on your swing. And then that ball ends up playing you, which is probably the worst thing that can happen on a ball that's not hit very hard, that's asking you to do something really positive with it. Yeah, I think it's a good initial focal point on the shot. Just it starts with the feet. It starts with always taking the little adjustment steps to get in the exact right position because I think 
people a lot of times think on that ball that's down the middle. Oh, it's coming right to me. I don't have to move my feet as much as a ball on the run. And it's really the opposite. You have to move your feet as much, if not more, on that ball. If you're practicing with a coach or a ball machine, I like to say, believe it or not, there's there's such a thing is called a positive miss. A positive miss, that's what I was telling the guy last week, I would much rather you move your feet, create some space, rip it, and you just overplay it. Now maybe we could temper it. What's more of a problem is, is that we're not getting any space. We're not like, we're we're not doing the same thing two or three times in a row. We're doing something different every time. So then it becomes different types of problems. If you're just going a little too big, then it's, a, it's more about like, let's just bring in the reins a little bit. Let's just bring in our range. So that I would rather you, you know, err on going too aggressive than where you're just sometimes afraid to hit it and afraid to miss it. Yeah, I, I agree. You got to, you got to commit to the shot and to totally pass up an opportunity to be aggressive, even if you make the ball, is, is to me, yeah, a, probably a worse error. Commit to the shot. It sounds like me committing to like making my world famous soup when I do for lunch. <laughs> world, yeah, the, the world famous soup is a, yeah, that's a struggle in my book, but you like it, so. <laughs> okay, let's go to questions. The listener said, I, I disheveled you about my world. Yeah, fantasy. yeah, I didn't expect you to bring up the soup. I'm like, what was it, salmon, salmon soup today? Oh, today oh, with salmon with all the different leftovers, and you create, oh. yeah, you're, it's basically like a leftover soup. Yeah, you know, whatever's left in the fridge. Uh, not, not, you know, you like it. What the, the, and the, I would say the key ingredient is just a ridiculous amount of hot sauce. Oh, too. chili, yeah, you put in a little <laughs> chili sauce and yeah, a yeah. bunch of different herbs. Okay, yeah, no, I I'm, so get enjoy making no, my world famous soup. No, I am disheveled, but we got to get to the listener questions. Please keep sending them to winninguglier at gmail.com. You know, I love this component of the podcast and I like, you know, just the back and forth element and, you know, connecting listeners to the show. So, this first one is from Sam from Canada. He says, I was fortunate enough to attend Alan Fox's tennis camps at Pepperdine in my early teens. And for those that don't know, Alan Fox was my dad's college coach at Pepperdine. He, uh, Sam says, as you well know, he was a huge proponent of tennis psychology. How important is it for young developing players to dedicate this aspect of their game? And I and I will further and say not just young players, but really all players to develop this aspect of their game. Until I met Alan, you know, way back in the day, you didn't really, you know, you were kind of scared of the word psychologist, you know, because that meant that you had problems and, and it really wasn't that big yet in tennis or sports. But I remember the first time that Alan did a little psychology on me, it was like maybe my second or third match at Pepperdine. I was playing like crap. And I was down two, five and a third to this guy that absolutely I have no idea why. And he comes out on the court, you know, a slow little walk and I'm waiting for him to give me like something strategy wise or tell me something about this guy's game, anything like that. And he goes, hmm, two, five down in the third. You've got him exactly where you want him. This guy is so scared to win the match. You got him perfect situation. I look at him and like, that's what you got? No strategy. And next thing you know, I kind of laughed about it. I won five games on the trot. 
But he would always kind of do little things like that, that, you know, in its own way, because at five, two and a third, you are in trouble. But he made light of the situation instead of like stressing the situation. Yeah, it freed you up in a way, maybe loosened you up. Yeah, because I was looking at him like, aren't you going to tell me to break down his forehand or like the guy's backhand? No way he's going to be able to keep this up. And another guy that I got to know from NorCal, his name is Jeff Greenwall, and he works with a lot of, you know, good, you know, from juniors to pros, adults, uh, and helping them, you know, understand their strengths and weaknesses on the court. I'd like to think maybe one of my strengths as a player and as a coach that I'm just so passionate about the game and what I'm doing that maybe I have sports psychology in my coaching without really even knowing it, just the power of kind of positive thinking and always kind of kind of thinking about what I can do to play better or what my opponent's doing. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely one of those sort of areas of all sports that's shifted over over time, you know, going, you know, having that initial stigma, like, you know, when you were growing up to now just being such an integral part, I think, of any kind of like high level training is the psychology element. And you have to understand that being in the right mental space when you're out there playing is just as important as all the other factors that go into playing, if not more important, because it really all starts with the mindset and just being in that right space out there. And obviously, different things work for different people. I like to say everything in balance. If you're trying to, you know, literally work with somebody every single day on your head, that can get in your head. But if your things aren't getting better, you know, sometimes it's not just the coaching. It's your footwork. Sometimes it's your head. It's different things. Yeah, I think being proactive with it is also, you know, beneficial. But I agree that the balance is important and not overdoing it. It's a great word and learning it. And Alan would have fun with it. And he liked, you know what I would say as much as anybody I, I've known, he enjoys a deep discussion. You know, whether or not it's history, it's tennis, it's politics. And sometimes he could get into a deep discussion with somebody to take pressure off of them for when they're playing tomorrow because they're not even worried about that because he would get them in this deep discussion. I don't even know if he did that on purpose sometimes or it was just the genius of him. I guess I guess you'd have to ask him, but I, I bet a lot of that was with some pretty solid intent, though. Uh, you know, always, you know, if, especially if someone's nervous or something like that, get him thinking about, you know, off that over fixation on the match, I think can, can be a really good thing sometimes. So, I mean, that was probably the one thing that I did notice when I was in college and, and even when I first turned pro, how many players did obsess about the result and actually worried about the negative of the result before it happened? And I would always like, be, you know, like, really, why... Why are you so, you know, fixated or worried, you know, what's going to happen today in practice or the match or anything like, opposed to like, let's deal with it while it's happening. And then afterwards, maybe see if there's something that's fixable instead of spending that energy worrying about it before it happens. Yeah, I think that's, that's the whole thing is you're, you're taking it moment to moment and you're not trying to sort of project you know, what the result of the match is going to be or thinking about losing or thinking about winning before it's it's happened. You're thinking about it point to point. I think it was the, the good Michael Jordan one from The Last Dance where he's like, you know, he was 
never worried about taking a game winning shot because he never thought about it until the moment actually ar- arise. He's like, why am I, why would I spend time worrying about a shot that hasn't happened yet? And also, you know, one thing that I never did, and I think sports psychologists do teach you about this whole winning. I, I, I didn't do that. Uh, yeah, I'm sure that, you know, that's, you, you know, it's part of, if you do everything right, you know, maybe you know, or, or learning how to win. I didn't really think about if I did X, Y, and Z, I was going to win. If I did say, I just always- There's no guarantees. I just thought about strategy. What that I was trying to accomplish to my opponent that he was trying to accomplish to me. And then I would just, I, I mean, for me, the most important word about sports psychology or about anything is just compete. You know, feel like that you you gave and and you can deal with that. Yeah, I think, and that's where the the real satisfaction will come from, and that's what'll keep you getting after it uh, day after day. And I think that's that's the whole beauty of it. This next question comes from Joe D, who says, "I was wondering if you guys are able to give us outsiders insights into a typical day in the life of a college player as well as a professional tennis player." Uh, and first, he says, from a college player perspective. How often are you able to train while juggling your coursework? Well, this is a t- tricky, you know, question because it it depends on the individual. Let's say you're a college player and you're a good college player, but your aspirations aren't to play pro tennis and to be a student first, to be a teammate second. Um, so, so th- th- this is something that it, you you need to learn to be able to balance. My case. I was a tennis player, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth. Yeah, I don't know if it's the best example. Maybe a student. You're all so, in on, on the tennis. So any ch- chance I got to be practicing, I was going to be practicing or working on it. But now so many players, like take for me when I was 18, 19, I didn't really do anything else other than, man, if I had extra time, I was working on my forehand, working on my vibes, working on my serve and maybe doing some push-ups hitting the heavy bag. But now so many players are working on their fitness, they're working on their strength and conditioning, they're working on their diet, they're working on so if I'm thinking at least 20 to 30 hours a week some of these, you know, there's restrictions now in college. Like in the fall, you can't have all these, you know, real team practices, but you can have voluntary practices. So it's like you're kind of frowned upon if you don't do it. But I, I do think it's a balance for everybody, how much time that you want to put in and what's constructive for you. Yeah. And from my experience as a as a college player at Berkeley, and I think maybe I had a bit more of the traditional college ex- player experience than, than you did in the sense that, you know, most college players are not thinking their number one goal is to play pro tennis. You know, maybe it's an aspiration, but they're they're definitely wanting to focus on the school aspect first, and you are a student athlete, you know, student before you're an athlete. But yeah, the, the the schedule of being a training schedule of being a D1 player is, um, is tough. It's, you know, and you got, you have to find the balance. I mean, we would practice about two to three hours a day, six days a week, training in the mornings, at least an hour, three days a week. And especially spring schedule, you know, a lot of travel involved in terms of playing the dual matches. So, you know, we had that good range, you know, in the middle of the day 
for classes. And I mean, my teammates would even always sometimes give me a little bit of flack for picking some of the the easier classes. I had a a decent knack for finding the ones that were at least going to, you know, not not crush me, especially in the spring to to give me a little bit more energy to, you know, to focus on tennis as well. But that that balance is 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 was really key in terms of and it took about you know a year to to figure out the balance between classes and tennis. Let's take for me when I was at Foothill. So often, the most important I told you one through nine for me was tennis. So there's not a moment that anything has got to be put that it's almost like you know if you're a student first. Everything that centers around being a student first and then being able to fit in your tennis. So mine was the opposite that like, okay, I'm never going to have a class a few hours before tennis because I don't want anything to be affecting me before tennis. Yeah, a lot, a lot of guys just don't have that that option. That and then I would take a couple of night classes, you know, it may be easy to sneak missing night class, but I cannot have anything affecting me before practice. And then, you know, I would take a super early class, you know, so... Listen, I'm not advocating how you do it, how I did it. But if you're a student first, what's most important is that somehow that you can arrange your schedule that the tennis can fit into it. In my case, it was how can, you know, going to school fit into being a tennis player? Actually, my college coach, I do like like this one. It's it was, it's a good line, and I think it's true. It's good advice that if you're a a college athlete, that you can focus on there's three things that you can focus on in college, and one is school, one is your sport, and one is partying. And which, because obviously it's college, people party. And he's like, you can do two of the three things well, but you can never do all three things well at the same time. And I think that's very spot on. Uh, uh, interesting from Coach Peter Wright. Yeah, there. that's a good. That's a good yeah. Peter Wright. Yeah, quote. He, he says you could choose three of them. You can. You could. No, no, no. Choose three of them. But there's only one that you can't, you know, of no, the no, three. No, no, it's that there are three of them. You can only choose two of the three. Okay, I like it. And obviously the message is choose tennis and school and not party. And, and you know what? I saw a stat this year, I think in the men's doubles. I think there was something like, so it was 64 teams, so 128 players. I think there was something like 33 guys that had played uh, college tennis um, the guy that won the doubles again this year played where in the SEC. Auburn, I think. Yeah. yeah. And so there's a bunch. Was it Kraviets or Mies, though? I, it's I can't, one of those yeah, two remember. that I saw. Yeah. And quite a few are having success. So you can go to school and be a very successful student and you can become a player. So there's great resources to use. So many of these schools have great resources besides the learning in their athletic department. Absolutely. And then just uh, to finish it off, what about that pro player perspective? Like, what's a day, what's a day in in the life like on the tour? Let's say it's it's a match day for you as a player or as a coach. You know what's fascinating about that, Buck? Just about every single player that I've worked with, everybody's different. Everybody, you know, needs or has a different schedule. The one thing now that's massively changed from 25 years ago to when I played to when I was first coaching on, there's a lot more things that the players are doing off the court. 
you know, besides the practice, be too, you know, much more in the gym, much more, you know, they, they travel with physios and they're doing lots more things. It's much more of an all day activity, keeping the body and mind in check. For whether or not it's from the diet to the mental, to the physical, all these different things. I mean, I, I was like, I like to kind of just be at the courts probably way too much, just soaking everything in. Um, so it, it, there's not exactly a foolproof. So everybody's different. Some players, let, let, let's say if you're playing a night match, you know, some like to, you know, hit in the day, early in the day or in the morning, break it up. Some even like to, to warm up in the morning or, or, or do things in the morning, warm up later. So sometimes as the coach, you can make suggestions, but doesn't mean it's absolutely right for that player because everybody that I've seen lately has a different groove. But I can tell you a day in the life for me, when I was young, man, I bring my bag sometimes. I'd go to the courts and I wouldn't come back until like late. I just love being at the courts. I love watching. I love being in the training room. I just like being around the courts. And as you said, everyone kind of has a different groove and everyone sort of has a different way they like to go about it you know it's certainly some players like to spend more time at the actual site than the other than others but i think the one thing that that sort of is true is pretty much everybody sticks to their routine they get a routine that gets them to where they are that you know and there's always obviously tweaks and adjustments to the routine over time but by and large you stick to your routine you know my routine i'll call it the quirkiness how i am Winning, you know, I, 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 rinse and repeat. When you're winning, <laughs> you know, because I can't, you know, don't mess with it's the street. Superstitious element I'm, of the I'm, routine. I'm definitely super. And when things are going well, you don't change it. For me, whether or not that's racing out on the court first and making sure I get in the same chair on the court, or I eat at the same time, eat the same. I actually could make myself believe little stupid things. Uh, Andre kind of cured me of that. He goes, I'm from Vegas. You know, rabbit's foots don't work. That's why they're building up more walls. But when things aren't going well, you got to change up your routine from when you're warmed up for the match, what you've done, all those little things that I think about the little things, believe it or not, in routines, when they're going well to when they're not going well, making adjustments in those. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think there's... There's degrees to it because, right, you don't want to necessarily switch up everything you do, you're do. you doing and overreacting to one loss. But, I mean, I think if there's a pattern of things not, you know, going the way that you'd like, you know, yes, yeah, certainly at some point you have to make changes. I think that you, more often than not, I tend to tell a lot of players, the start of matches from juniors to college, usually to club players, is the most crucial time. So often than not, you see players get off to slow start. And I think that that's something in the metabolics, the routine, everything is, what are we going to do to be ready? So believe it or not, I used to have this habit. I, it's, I'm sure everybody will tell you, you know, what a nut job he was for back in the day. But I always used to li- literally almost walking on the court, drink a cup of coffee. Because that would kind of get my little sweat going, get me a little bit alert. I know you can crash from it, but it... it I think there are some better modern alternatives to that, like drink-wise. But yeah, there's certainly things you can do to up the energy level. You you know what else I never did? When it was hot, I couldn't believe Andre could sit in a meat locker. 
to cold this room, come right out and go play. If I was playing in hot weather, I had to sit outside in the shade for an hour before I played. I, I didn't sit inside in, in, in a cold room or in air conditioning. I actually had to climatize and kind of just be in the shade, kind of be in the moment outside kind of getting ready. That, that was the quirkiness of me because I, I just didn't like to come from a cold room. And Ironic's another one. He could come right from a cold room, go out. But you can make yourself believe things. And But I do think one word, once you turn pro, is patience and how you learn to balance, you know, a day because now, you know, you could do too many things and you could be unproductive. You could do not enough and be uh, unproductive. It's finding that balance, what is right for you and playing the best tennis. Good, solid advice right there. I think that's that's something that... Oh, it's also you know, the quirkiness of me. That, very, that, yeah, you got your own quirks for sure. But still, no, definitely good, solid advice. I think that'll do it for today. Unless you got any closing thoughts. You know what? Closing thoughts today. I love the word in tennis, adjustments. And adjustments, because so often you hear, I got to play my game. I got to play my game. This is great when everything is going the way you want it to. But more often than not, when we're competing, there's going to be a curve. And a curve or a fork in the road means adjustments. And what am I willing to do? Because sometimes when you're not willing to make adjustments, you're just willing to be stubborn. You're willing another loss. I mean, if you're not growing your game, you're not improving. I mean, and that's that's the thing. You got to always be thinking to add elements to in, to grow your game. And, and growing your game can happen in, in a moment in a match when things are not going well at 6-1-1-0. From Kenan losing love and love to adding the moon ball. Maybe she just did it for the heck of it the day after practice because she was so mad at herself the way she played and like, hmm, maybe this could be something I can incorporate in my game. So you must be adaptable. You must be willing to make adjustments. We all have this perfect plan that it's going to work, but I usually say throw it out the window in the second set when you're down. <laughs>